0: When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one, and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth so its citizens would slay each other, and he was given a large sword. So when the second seal was opened, another horse came out, a fiery red one, and the second living creature, which is the ox, comes and directs the rider of this horse. Come forth! This color of the second horse, which is fiery red, and the great large sword given to its rider are symbolic of fire and blood, internal and external wars. This statement in this verse can truly make someone shiver, so they can slay each other, so they can knife each other. It is a much more powerful verb than kill. It shows a certain viciousness. This shows that this will not be a war where it is necessary to kill some people in order to win. But the word slay shows bloodthirstiness and a certain viciousness and this bloodthirstiness and animosity is characteristic of civil wars, and wars between two neighboring nations. But the phrase, so they would slay each other, shows a certain proximity, and it most likely refers to gruesome civil wars, where passions run very, very high and deep. And to tell you the truth, This is one of the few things that I became afraid of in my entire life, the element of the civil war. There's nothing more dreadful than this type of war. My friends, can you imagine this? Here we have quite a few hundreds of listeners. We feel good about each other. We are friendly to each other. We are very close. I'm sitting here at this chair, feeling very, very secure. I'm teaching and you are listening. Assuming that a civil war breaks out again like the ones we had only a few decades ago, what would happen to our friendship? How would we look at each other? All those who lived the terror of our past civil war know these feelings. They can undoubtedly understand that the civil war is many times worse than a regular war between two different nations. War is never pleasant, and you fight to win. But what kind of victory is there in a civil war? There is no victory, especially when you walk through the dead corpses of your opposing camp, and you just realize that you just killed your uncle or your little brother. Anyway, what's worse here is that these wars, whether external or internal, Will take place worldwide, but especially in the Christian nations. But what is the cause behind these wars, especially since the gospel today is being taught all over the world? You would think that we should be free of wars now that the gospel has been translated in about 1800 different languages and dialects to the point where even China and Korea and Japan, they have their translated versions of the Bible. Yes, the Bible was translated, but the sermon of the true gospel was not accepted. So along with the spreading of the gospel, the waves of persecution started immediately. So the persecution is the second phase always following the teaching of the gospel. THE LORD SAID, AND THIS GOSPEL OF THE KINGDOM WILL BE PREACHED IN THE WHOLE WORLD AS A WITNESS TO ALL THE NATIONS, THEN THE END WILL COME. HOW ARE WE TO UNDERSTAND THIS? THE GOSPEL WILL BE PREACHED IN THE ENTIRE WORLD TO ALL THE NATIONS AS A WITNESS, AS A TESTIMONY, IF YOU WILL. WHAT IS THIS WITNESS? that it was preached, but it was not believed. Because when the Lord says that one of the signs of the end of history will be that the gospel will be preached to all the nations, and St. Paul accentuates this point, and he says the gospel was not preached to the entire world. Yes, but St. Paul made this statement a couple thousand years ago. My friends, in the last 19 centuries, the gospel was preached to all the nations. The entire earth has heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you may say, well, not all people became Christians. We still have approximately one-third of the population of the earth who are not Christian, regardless if the people accepted the gospel or not. The fact is that the Gospel was preached, it was offered to them. As we said, the Gospel was translated in 1,800 different languages or dialects. So the Gospel has been heard, it has been presented, but people chose not to accept it. The Gospel was not believed. I happen to have samples of twenty, twenty-five different Gospels in the Chinese language alone. What makes Chinese very difficult is that these are there are very, very many dialects with different writing characters, different alphabets, so to speak, which make Chinese one of the most difficult languages of the world. However, the Gospel has been translated in every Chinese dialect. Now, you may ask, since the Gospel was preached, over and over again, then why isn't China a Christian nation? The same holds true for Japan. Russian Orthodox missionaries tried to Christianize Japan for three centuries. In the middle of the last century, finally, some successful missionaries were able to establish an Orthodox Christian community of a few thousand in Japan. Today we have a metropolitan in Hong Kong, a bishop in Korea, a priest in Indonesia, but outside of these isolated cases, the vast majority of the people of China and Japan hold on to idolatry. The gospel entered Japan, it entered China and it entered Korea hundreds of years ago, but it was never fully embraced. We have Chinese saints, Orthodox, martyr for the faith in the early 1900s so the gospel has been preached but it was not accepted it was not believed which means exactly what the lord said this gospel will be preached in all nations in the entire world as a martyria as a testimony for the sake of testimony so these people these nations will not be able to tell me lord we never heard about you Well, they heard about me and about my Gospel. They will not be able to tell me this when I judge them based on the Gospel. So this will be a testimony, or this Gospel will be the witness on the Day of Judgment, and it will be judging these nations. I came to you, but you rejected me. So this is one of the signs of the end of times, as Saint Paul says, especially We have many signs in the gospel that warn us about the end of times, the end of history. The Lord himself gave us the example of the fig tree. He said, when you see the fig tree, bring forth tender leaves. You say summer is near. And when you see all these signs taking place, you must know that the end is near. These are the words of the Lord. The Lord does not reveal the hour and the day to us. We don't know exactly when the end will be, but He gave us plenty of signs about His Second Coming. And not only He gave them to us, but He rebukes us if we would fail to study them and look for them. Christ rebuked those who ignore the signs of the First Coming of the Lord. They miss the coming of the Messiah altogether. And by ignoring the signs and the Holy Scriptures, they crucified their Messiah. And the Lord said, Hypocrites, you know how to read the face of heaven. You say in the morning the sky is red, the east is red, we will have good weather. At night time, you say the west is red, so we will have bad weather. So you know how to read the face of heaven, or the meteorological changes. You know how to forecast all these things. And you say tomorrow it will rain or snow, and that's fine. But why don't you study the face of history? Why don't you study the Holy Scriptures so you will know when the end will come? So the Lord called hypocrites those who do not care to learn about the end of times. They involve themselves with all kinds of guessworks and forecasts, political forecasts, economical a forecast, stock markets, football forecasts, weather forecast as it relates to produce, but people stay totally indifferent about the forecast that matters the most, the forecast of the end of history. This is how the Lord spoke on these matters. You want to know something else? The Lord said that when he comes back, would he find faith on the earth? A very depressive question which remained without answer, at least in the scriptures. But the answer is very obvious. It is one of those rhetorical questions that he will not find faith on the earth. And this is why he opens this subject. When the Son of Man comes back, will he find the faith that he taught on the earth? He will not find it. He will find a few believers. The remnant, as St. Paul says, will be available. Consequently, this proves that the gospel will be preached as a witness whether people accept it or not. However, because of this witness, people who rejected the gospel will be inexcusable. And the Lord continues, you're about to hear about wars. Of course, since people will not accept the gospel, you have plenty of wars. And since we will speak more about wars during the fourth seal, We will not mention much about them here. So since people will refuse to accept the gospel, which is the gospel of lasting peace, the natural consequence of the absence of the gospel is the continuation of bloody wars and this among the Christian nations, because even the Christian nations fail to accept the entire gospel. They only hold on to some points of the Christian gospel. My friends, Bulgaria happens to be our neighbor. The official church of Bulgaria is Orthodox, and yet we always have political and geographical tensions with them. For what reason? We are both Orthodox. However, we don't see eye to eye. Why? Because we don't accept the gospel in its entirety. The Lord continues and says, and rumors of wars, so you will hear and see wars. Be careful. Do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So these wars will precede the end. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. All this will be the beginning of the tribulation, or the beginning of birth pains. Not the end, but the beginning. Then, You will be handed over to great affliction. You will be handed over to suffer. Who? You. The twelve. But only the twelve? Not only the twelve disciples, but all the faithful inside history. They will hand you over to afflictions. And they will kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name. And at that time, many will be scandalized. They will abandon the faith. Many Christians, that is, they will compromise. They will leave the true faith because they will not be able to stand up against the hate of the opposition. And they will fall. They will renounce their Christian identity. Scandalized mean they will stumble. They will renounce the Christian baptism and they will begin to betray and hate each other. They will betray each other to the opposing authorities and they will hate each other because of my name, says the Lord. But in the Gospel of Matthew 10, 21, the Lord is even more direct. Brother will betray brother to death. And here, not among two spiritual brothers, where the one weakens and betrays the other. This happens as well, but more specifically here, this refers to brothers or siblings. Who were born of the same mother and they have a common father they will betray each other turn one another in to be killed and the father will betray his own child and the children will be rebelling against their father and they will turn to kill them all these events described by the lord can be summarized by the plain and simple image of the red horse the red fiery horse which came out of the seal along with its rider to take peace from the earth and to introduce bloody killings holding on to the large sword. However, we need to call your attention to this point. All these things that we are saying here are not specific events in history which we must research, but a general state of events. Let's not say that this happens in our days or this happened during World War II or this will happen soon. No, this persecution of Christians happens always. And let's not look for specific events in history thinking that this already happened. So we don't have to worry about that one again. In other words, we need to understand this very well. As the white horse is constantly coming out, which we see during the opening of the first seal, and interpreted as the constant preaching of the gospel in the entire earth. The gospel is always being preached on the earth. In this context, we must realize that the red horse will always be coming out, and it will always follow the white horse, as the persecution against the gospel. Because Everywhere the gospel goes, it meets up with hostility and persecution. Consequently, as the white horse is riding along, the red horse is but a few steps behind. Therefore, since people in general do not accept and do not fully practice the gospel, as we explained earlier, peace is taken from the earth, and what do we end up here is the cyclical method of interpretation as we were explaining at the last time during the introduction. In other words, the first horse will always be coming out, the second horse will always be coming out, not came out, but will always be coming out. The Gospel was not limited to the time of the Apostles only. At this very moment we are preaching the Gospel and at this moment we can undergo persecution. Once again, the white horse is always coming out, the red horse is always following behind. And as we see when we study the other seals, during the opening of the other seals, the black horse will always be coming out, and the yellow horse at the opening of the fourth seal will always be coming out, but we will see this in our future studies. I will also offer a number of examples so you understand this cyclical method of interpretation very well. Everyone must really digest this. I don't want anyone here who fails to understand this. So when you study the scriptures, uh, you will not think that, oh, this thing's uh, past and you know, we are there behind us. Uh, This thing's already took place or will take place sometime in the distant future. But these things are happening constantly. With one important detail, however, as we reach the end, we will have a concentration of these events. A concentration in quantity and quality. More floods, more wars, more diseases, more and bigger and more powerful as we are pushing towards the end. Please be aware of this. St. Andrew of Caesarea writes at the expansion of the Gospel, the peace of the world was destroyed. Do you listen to this oxymoron? As the Gospel spread, peace was broken. Peace was taken. As the Gospel advances, peace is gone. And this according to the saying of Christ, I did not come to bring peace upon the earth, but sword. This sounds like an oxymoron uh, at first, but we will understand this in just a minute. Naturally, Christ did not come to bring knives upon the earth. And here, when the second seal is opened and a great sword is given to the writer, this sword, the war, is started by the people who oppose Christ. The sword is used by the unbelievers against Christians against Christ and His Church, and Christ simply allows it. That's all this is, and this allotment of Christian killing takes the evangelical expression that Christ came on earth to bring sword and not peace. To bring a knife, a sword. In other words, His presence took the peace from the earth. Why? because people refused the peace of the Gospel. We will offer more on this during the fourth seal. As to why this is, because there it refers to war again. And there, there's some more vivid and important verses in that seal. So how was this sword given? What causes the strangling of peace, the rejection of the Gospel by humanity? Saint Andrew again interprets and says this was given a great sword shows the all-wise allotment of God coming to test his faithful servants through temptations. So on the one hand Christ respects the freedom even of those who come to oppose him and hate him and on the other hand he allows this persecution to test his faithful servants as Christ was put through the fire. Any way we look at it, the subject of persecution is interwoven with the spreading of the gospel. The subject of persecution is interwoven with the spiritual life. Do you wish to live the spiritual life, my friends? You will face persecution. At your initial steps, be aware of this. Saint Paul says, all those who want to live with piety will be persecuted. This is a general rule. All those who wish to live a life of spirituality will be persecuted. A man who seems to be spiritual, and yet he's not persecuted, then you should begin to doubt his spirituality, except if he lives somewhere in a desert or in a forest all by himself. However, there he will be under the fierce persecution of the demons. And the attack of the demons against the ascetics is far more worse and more fierce than the attacks of people. Many times we can hide from people, we can enter a cave, we can hide, but we can never hide from the demons. No matter what hole of the earth we crawl into, the demons will be there before us. Now we can understand again the statement of St. Paul that it is necessary to that we enter the Kingdom of God through many trials. We must go through many trials. This must, this necessity of trials, is not something that God demands from us. It is not one of God's conditions for our salvation to overcome these trials. This must concerning the trials is the work of the enemies of the Gospel and the devil. As far as this must, The Lord says, it is impossible for the scandals not to come. However, woe to that person through whom the scandals will come. Now answer this. If the scandals were prepared or caused by God, how would Christ say, woe to the man who brings the scandals? Wouldn't this be a terrible contradiction on God's uh, part? So this impossible for the scandals not to come refers to people who will not receive the gospel. And those who will not accept the gospel will always exist with a constant increase as we get closer towards the end. As we get closer to the end, more and more people will be rejecting the gospel. Maybe you begin to feel this even in our lifetime, which is but a very small period of time, 40, 50, 70 years. Uh, It's a very small fraction of time compared to the time of the gospel. And yet someone who's 50 or 60 or 70 years old has seen some of these signs. He has seen how people thought 60 years ago and how they think now, how people lived 50 years ago and how they live now and how they will be living 20 years from now. In summarizing what we said about the second seal, Michael Akominatis interprets, with the opening of the second seal and after the succession of the apostles and with the increase of the preaching by martyrs and teachers, the world rebelled. And persecutions and killings of those who loved Christ took place everywhere and peace was replaced by the sword which Christ came to bring upon the earth. Therefore, the reddish fiery horse is symbolic of the fiery temptations and the fiery zeal of the victorious martyrs who spill their blood for the faith. However, the Lord says something, and we might as well know it. And the enemies of Amen, the people in his own home. family members, those under his roof. And this happens so often. When one of us wants to live the spiritual life, then those in our own home who cannot understand us turn against us. The house becomes very hostile very soon. This tragic and dreadful phenomenon is an everyday reality, unfortunately. And we now come to the opening of the third seal. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the third seal was open a black horse came forth and the third living creature, having a face like a man, told the rider of this black horse, come, which means do not hold back, you must go forth with your program. This rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. The black horse symbolizes mourning and gloom and deep sadness. Why all this gloom? Why all this gloom from the plague that this writer will bring upon the entire earth? The scale symbolizes hunger and the lack of food which will cause the cost of mere bread to skyrocket. The scale shows that the food will be so limited that it will be rationed and truly A voice was heard among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So a quart of wheat, a quart is nearly 930 grams. And that quart will be sold for a denarius, while three quarts of barley will be sold for one uh, denarius, being that wheat is much more valuable in terms of quality. To better picture this economic system and its price structure, and to understand the degree of this plague of hunger, we need to run back 2,000 years ago when this script was written, to look precisely at the money system uh, used back then, and the daily pay rate, remembering that people were paid daily after the workday. Uh, After the workday came to an end, they were paid. In Matthew 20 verse 2, the Lord offers the parable of the workers of the vineyard. Obviously, the parables of the Lord are not actual stories, uh, but they are made up of real life situations. They were very didactic in the sense that they are not imaginary or mythical. They're not like the fables of Aesop, where foxes and lions and crows speak. The content of the parable is totally realistic. And the Lord takes real-life situations with people speaking, and He does not use anything imaginary. So in this particular parable, the daily pay rate that the Lord uses was the standard daily pay rate for that time frame. And we read in Matthew 22, and having agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. So the daily pay rate was a denarius. So according to the prophecy of this seal, one quart of wheat will cost one denarius, or one day's wages, and with the same money someone can bring home three quarts of barley. Now, if we could consider that an average income in this country today is, let's say, $100 per day, then two pounds of wheat, one quart of wheat is 900 grams, or approximately two pounds, then a pound of wheat will cost $50, and a pound of barley, approximately $17. This, to get an idea how expensive things will be price-wise. However, there's also restriction towards the quantity that can be purchased, and this is indicated by the scales held by the writer expressing the reality of rationing. However, the hunger described by this plague will not be extremely terrible because of the voice added by the four living creatures, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So the writer is not given permission to damage the production of oil and wine, which are very basic necessities of human uh, existence, human nutrition. It is common knowledge that wheat or bread, oil, and wine are three basic representatives of human nutrition. That's why during the service of artoclasia, or the blessing of the five loaves of bread during feast days. Along with the loaves of bread, we also have a flask of oil and wine on the table. And these are the representative elements of human nutrition. And that's why we pray to God by blessing these items during the artoclasia service, not to ever do without these, but to always have the food necessary for our sustenance. We ask God to bless these items so they can be plentiful in our homes. That's why we pray. And for the Lord to bless those who are having this service, those who have requested this uh, service on this particular feast day to be celebrated. So their pantries, their food cabinets are complete and full. So we pray not to ever experience this evil of hunger because I. Truly tell you, it is a terrible companion. Hunger is a terrible thing. Only those who experience the, the reality of hunger can fully understand my words at this moment. And maybe this do not damage the oil and the wine takes place for the sake of the faithful, for their providence. We surmise this from what the Lord said if God did not shorten the days. Uh, if he would not cut this period of tribulation short, and this for the sake of the faithful, no one would be able to live on the earth. The ever-memorable Greek professor of theology, Panagiotis Braciotis writes in his interpretation of the book of the Revelation, and I quote, "...the love of God softens the austerity of his judgment." So this plague is definitely milder than the one of the Hellenic hunger of the dreadful winter of 1941-1942 during the German occupation. Only those who lived in Athens in 41-42 can really know the misery of hunger of that time. I am a survivor of that winter. I lived through it. I will never forget, my friends, I remember this very well, how we would go about to find some bread. If we could get our our hands on any, I will present a description, and this especially for the younger crowd, and I will ask you to hold on to this information so we can be preparing ourselves for the future. I remember the bakeries were giving out some bread. Now, what kind of bread? Who knows? No one could ever find out the exact ingredients of this bread. They were saying that it was from sawdust, from wood. Wooden bread, they used to call it. Maybe it was cornbread, a very strange kind of product. The fact is that it was not possible to knead this dough, so they they used to place it in in huge metal pans, and they would place wax paper on the bottom because without it, you would never be able to unglue it from the bottom of the pan. When the bread was baked, they used to cut it with pizza cutters along with the wax paper, which was permanently stuck to the bread and became part of our diet. No one had the patience to take the paper off. Now, which person was rationed approximately three and a half ounces of this delicacy once every five days or once a week? Not every day. And we needed to wait outside of this bakery for hours in long lines to get our portion. Now, if we would go very early in the morning, we would get our portion by 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon because when they would place the dough in the oven, what dough actually, looked like soup. And that's why it would take so long. It would take hours to bake. Now, someone would go late, and be towards the end of the line, there was no guarantee that there would be enough. They often ran out, and the doors closed. Now, if you can understand this, we waited hours upon hours online when we were told that the bakeries have bread. And this, once a week, once every five days, at three and a half ounces per person. We are saying this for our younger listeners who may toss bread around. They play games, they play football with pieces of bread. They eat a sandwich and they are full and they kick the other half like a soccer ball. My dear children, you kick your bread and you provoke God. God is provoked by this. However, if we would attempt to search for the deeper causes of this plague of hunger, described here in the opening of the third seal, and uh, as we will see, even in the fourth seal, where we will find again the subject of hunger and war, we need to run back to Leviticus. There, in the verses of that book of the Old Testament, God promises all his blessings to his people as long as his people stay faithful to God and to his commandments. Now, if the people of God distance themselves and espouse idolatry, then much trouble and tribulation awaits these people. And one of these evils is the evil of hunger. So the plagues are given and are caused by people's rebellion against God, people's apostasy. This is the main cause of these plagues, people's apostasy from God. Listen to how this is stated in Leviticus. If you walk along the path of my orders and you keep my commandments, and you follow them in your life, then I will give the proper rain, and the earth will bring forth its blessings, its crops, and you will eat the old crop and the crops of the previous years. Listen, the new crops will come, but your barns will still have plenty of the harvest of the previous year and the year before that. And you will have to Take out the old crops because you will have no room for the new ones. When? If you listen to me, if you keep my commandments, and if you do not fool around with idolatry. If you do not obey me, says God to his people, you will receive your bread with portions. Your bread will be rationed, and you will eat, but it will not fill you up. Scales will be used to measure a few ounces of bread for you, and you will eat, but you will not be filled. I collected all of the above from Deuteronomy 26, verse 3 and 4, verse 10, verse 14, and verse 26. Prophet Isaiah, my friends, forewarns about the same things in the third chapter, verse 1, and Prophet Elijah, I'm sorry, Prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 4 verse 16 and the Lord for says in matthew 8 24 and there will be famines and diseases and earthquakes in various places all these will be the beginning of birth pains tribulations now how are the faithful supposed to respond how are they to prepare when they study all these and are being warned about the arrival of these plagues. What must they do? What must we do? My friends, this is the purpose of studying. I just brought these points out by studying the book of the Revelation, and I will pass them on to you. I'm the first student. I study, I learn, and I tell you these things, and we learn together. I'm not at all above you. So now, what must we do? So hunger will not befall on us. And if hunger and these evils do come along our way, how can we prepare so they will not have a very serious effect on us? So what must we do? First, initially, we must always stay close to the Lord. And we should never rebel or sin. Do you see, my friends, the apostasy of our times? When I was very young, I used to find statements such as idolatry and people living as idolaters very far-fetched, rather excessive. I used to think that since we don't worship idols, verses of the scriptures about idolatry and idol worship are no longer meaningful in our times. My friends, these verses are always meaningful. Those Greek Orthodox have never been so close to worshiping idols, and this is a general trend of all Christian nations. If we could somehow measure the depth of idolatry of the Christian nations, we would be terrified. We would shudder. We would find out to what degree we have denied our Christian identity. Not speaking about heresy. Not speaking about the denial of the true faith in the person of Christ, which is neo arianism the denial of the divinity of Christ. But I am referring to the depth of idolatry in the world. If you will, the presence of Freemasonry is idolatry in its purest form, in its crudest form. And to think how the Christian nations tolerate and accept this evil. So how do we stand today? We're rebelling against God. But if we say that we don't rebel, but we remain faithful to Him, how about our lifestyle? Faith is the first prerequisite, but how do we live? We all sin. We all sin in broad daylight in front of God, shamelessly, every sin. Take a look around us. In the area of the fleshly sins, not to mention those of wealth, greed, and so many others, And you will see how today's people sin without hesitation. Obviously, faith and ethics are in a state of bankruptcy. And this for us, the Greeks, and generally all the Christian nations. And according to the Word of God, this spiritual bankruptcy will be followed by these plagues and the evils described here in the book of the Revelation. Now, if we as persons, As individuals want to be immunized from these evils even though we will suffer to a degree along with the others around us. We need to pay serious attention to the subject of faith and to the subject of ethics. So we do not fall or backslide. The Lord says and promises to the Bishop of Philadelphia chapter 3 verse 10 in the book of the Revelation. Because you kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of the temptation which will befall on the entire world to test all those that reside upon the earth. What is the nature of this temptation? A temptation in all sectors. Since you stayed faithful, To me, I will also keep you from the temptation that will come upon the entire earth, the temptation of war, and the temptation of illnesses, and the temptation of famine. All the temptations. And all this when? When you overcome the biggest temptation of all. When you do not lose faith in my God human person. Second. As faithful, we must always exercise a certain simplicity and frugality in our life and avoid waste if we want to stay faithful during difficult times. Our time has no prerequisite when it comes to waste. We must also learn different methods of preserving our produce and food products. Initially, let's not buy more food than we can use. Let's say you end up with an extra 10 pounds of grapes. After a week, you have no more room in the refrigerator and you're ready to toss them out. No, we should never throw anything in the garbage. It is a matter of planning and conditioning. And this, whether food or clothing or any other object, it is amazing how much waste we have today. But we should always think How can we make use of this leftover material? Take, for example, some apples. They have been sitting around for a few weeks because our teenagers would rather have candy bars. Take a couple apples, take out the core, and today most of you have a microwave. Put some sugar inside the core, a little water, cinnamon, and in two, three minutes in the microwave, and you have a delicious dessert, much better than a candy bar. As we say, when there's a will, there's a way. There's dozens of things you can think of to avoid throwing God's blessings away. I remember my friends, my mother. Again, this going back going back in World War II. And of course, you cannot keep fresh meat without a refrigerator. Believe me, in adverse conditions, there is no refrigeration. Freezers are not available. And even methods of canning, none of that. Listen to what my mother used to do, and this in the darkest days of the famine of 41-42. Truly black days. The Germans used to barbecue. They would barbecue or broil their meat, and they would eat and then throw away the bones. The bones inside are moist, so my mother would take these bones, place them in the oven, and dry them up. Now, at this, at this state, these bones can be stored safely in a bag without any danger of spoiling. So now someone could take two or three of these bones, the leftover of the German cafeterias, and with a little rice or split wheat or flour, these bones would not only add some kind of flavor, but a higher nutritional value, more so than just plain water. If we could somehow ever find ourselves in a different setting, around a campfire, to tell you all these things that we found ourselves doing to survive those years, which by the way, took many lives from starvation, throw away rotten eggs, forget it, we would break them, throw the rotten side away, and use the good part. Potato peelings? away by the Germans, well the Germans ate the potatoes, and we would go after the peels. We would wash them really well, put them in our manual food processor, and this potato mush together with the peels, of course, would soon be in the oven and become a potato pie. Now, we would be having a good day if we could find uh, some oil to put on the bottom and on the top. We would repeat the same process with orange peels. The German soldiers ate the oranges and we would go after their peels. We would boil them to get rid of the bitterness. Then we would put them through the food processor again and continue to boil them. And we would add a few raisins and that was our pastry for that day. I have so many different recipes from our days of famine. We survived those days. We lived through them. For this reason, my friends, let's be careful not to waste. As Christians, we need to watch this very much. As you know, we have a commandment from the Lord on this matter. When the 5008 and they were filled, do you know what commandment our Lord gave? Collect all the leftovers so nothing goes to waste. So pick up the pieces of bread, the ones that you gave out, so nothing is lost. Not a crumb. The important thing is that out of five loaves, five loaves of bread, all people ate and they were filled, and the leftovers collected filled twelve large baskets. The Lord did not show any frugality while blessing the loaves. He wanted people to eat and be filled. He blessed them richly. The Lord wants his people to be filled, as the evangelist says. And to get up from a table and still feel hunger pains, it is not a blessing, but rather a curse. But on the other hand, he says, collect and save the leftovers. What a great lesson for us. So please, all of you who listen to the Word of God, let's not throw food away in our homes. Those who throw God's blessing away, keep in mind, you will go hungry. Only if we don't throw food in the garbage, we will avoid future hunger. Third, we must always remember during the time of plenty, like now, the time of hunger. Always. And this so we can be content with a simple diet and plain simple nourishment, but to also prepare ourselves psychologically for whatever hunger the future may bring. I will repeat this again. We are not immune from a future hunger. Let's listen to the wisdom of Sirach, something very wise in chapter eighteen, verse twenty five. During times of plenty, remember the times of hunger, and during days of wealth, remember poverty. My friends, I live this verse because of my past experiences. I stared hunger right in the eyes. I went hungry for only a few days, thank God, in the winter of 41-42. The rest of the days we managed with a bone, soup, potato, peels, raisins, and by the grace of God, we did not go hungry and we lived. But those few days, I did go hungry. Thank God it was only for a short period of time. I used to wake up at night and I knew that there was nothing in the cabinets. I knew there was nothing there. And yet, I would get up to open it anyway, to see it, to see if I could find anything. So I close the cabinets and try to get back to sleep. Then I would get up again and repeat this entire process a number of times through the night. It is very hard to sleep when you are very hungry. This is dreadful. These memories still haunt me, and many times when we're eating Almost every time I think look how good that looks look at that food Now if hunger comes Would all this be available? We peel our fruits today, of course, we throw the peels away and I ask Would we throw them away during a time of hunger? We throw apples away because of a few worms or because of a slight bruise the holy scriptures come to warn us who always remember hunger. And the wisdom of Sirach also adds, from the morning until night the weather changes, and everything is up to change, and history changes in front of God. The wheel keeps turning. Today we have plenty to eat. How about tomorrow? And finally, almsgiving. In the Psalter, in the Psalms, we read, I saw the man of alms given from morning until night, and I never saw him go hungry, not him nor his children. My friends, when we show mercy, when we are generous, we have the hope to attract God's mercy. And yes, we will suffer if our country is suffering, but we will not die. God's mercy will shield us. If we keep these things in mind, then while searching, studying, and understanding the book of the Revelation, we will know to assume the proper stance. And as we stabilize our faith, we persevere, and we live in a state of expectation, then we have the optimism and the hope that we will not be derailed from God's will. Thus, we will not share in the awful predicament that awaits all the people of the world who will have rebelled from God.